Chapter Nine of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our first winter on the prairie. For a few days, my brother and I had little to do, other than to keep the cattle from straying, and we used our leisure in becoming acquainted with the region round about. It burned deep into our memories this wide, sunny, windy country, the sky so big, and the horizon line so low and so far away, made this new world of the plain more majestic than the world of the coulee. The grasses and many of the flowers were also new to us. On the uplands the herbage was short and dry, and the plants stiff and woody, but in the swales the wild oat shook its quivers of barbed and twisted arrows and the crow's foot, tall and sere, bowed softly under the feet of the wind, while everywhere, in the lowlands as well as on the ridges, the bleaching white antlers of bygone herbivora lay scattered, testifying to the herds of deer and buffalo which once fed there. We were just a few years too late to see them. To the south the sections were nearly all settled upon, for in that direction lay the county town but to the north and on into Minnesota rolled the unplowed sod, the feeding ground of the cattle, the home of foxes and wolves, and to the west, just beyond the highest ridges, we loved to think that the bison might still be seen. The cabin on this rented farm was a mere shanty, a shell of pine boards, which needed reinforcing to make it habitable, and one day my father said, well, Hamlin, I guess you'll have to run the plow team this fall. I must help neighbor Button wall up the house, and I can't afford to hire another man. This seemed a fine commission for a lad of ten, and I drove my horses into the field that first morning with a manly pride which added an inch to my stature. I took my initial round at a land which stretched from one side of the quarter section to the other in confident mood. I was grown up. But alas, my sense of elation did not last long. To guide a team for a few minutes as an experiment was one thing. To plow all day like a hired man was another. It was not a chore, it was a job. It meant moving to and fro, hour after hour, day after day, with no one to talk to but the horses. It meant trudging eight or nine miles in the forenoon and as many more in the afternoon, with less than an hour off at noon. It meant dragging the heavy implement around the corners, and it also meant many shipwrecks, for the thick, wet stubble, matted with wild buckwheat, often rolled up between the coulter and the standard, and threw the share completely out of the ground, making it necessary for me to halt the team and jerk the heavy plow backward for a new start. Although strong and active, I was rather short, even for a ten-year-old, and to reach the plow-handles I was obliged to lift my hand above my shoulders, and so with the guiding lines crossed over my back, and my worn straw hat bobbing just above the cross-brace, I must have made a comical figure. At any rate, nothing like it had been seen in the neighborhood, and the people on the road to town, looking across the field, laughed and called to me, and neighbor Button said to my father in my hearing, that chap's too young to run a plow, 
a judgment which pleased and flattered me greatly. Harriet cheered me by running out occasionally to meet me as I turned the nearest corner, and sometimes Frank consented to go all the way around, chatting breathlessly as he trotted along behind. At other times he was prevailed upon to bring me a cookie and a glass of milk, a deed which helped to shorten the forenoon. And yet, notwithstanding all these ameliorations, ploughing became tedious. The flies were savage, especially in the middle of the day, and the horses, tortured by their lances, drove badly, twisting and turning in their despairing rage. Their tails were continually getting over the lines, and in stopping to kick their tormentors from their bellies, they often got astride the traces, and in other ways made trouble for me. Only in the early morning, or when the sun sank low at night, were they able to move quietly along their ways. The soil was the kind my father had been seeking, a smooth, dark, sandy loam, which made it possible for a lad to do the work of a man. Often the share would go the entire round, without striking a root or a pebble as big as a walnut, the steel running steadily, with a crisp, crunching, ripping sound, which I rather liked to hear. In truth, work would have been quite tolerable, had it not been so long drawn out. Ten hours of it, even on a fine day, made about twice too many for a boy. Meanwhile I cheered myself in every imaginable way. I whistled, I sang, I studied the clouds, I gnawed the beautiful red skin from the seed vessels which hung upon the wild rose bushes, and I counted the prairie chickens as they began to come together in winter flocks, running through the stubble in search of food. I stopped now and again to examine the lizards unhoused by the share, tormenting them to make them sweat their milky drops. They were curiously repulsive to me and I measured the little granaries of wheat which the mice and gophers had deposited deep under the ground, storehouses which the plough had violated. My eyes dwelt enviously upon the sailing hawk and on the passing of ducks. The occasional shadowy figure of a prairie wolf made me wish for Uncle David and his rifle. On certain days nothing could cheer me. When the bitter wind blew from the north, and the sky was filled with wild geese racing southward, with swiftly hurrying clouds. Winter seemed about to spring upon me. The horses' tails streamed in the wind. Flurries of snow covered me with clinging flakes, and the mud gummed my boots and trouser legs, clogging my steps. At such times I suffered from cold and loneliness. All sense of being a man evaporated. I was just a little boy, longing for the leisure of boyhood. Day after day, through the month of October and deep into November, I followed that team, turning over two acres of stubble each day. I would not believe this without proof, but it is true. At last it grew so cold that in the early morning everything was white with frost, and I was obliged to put one hand in my pocket to keep it warm while holding the plough with the other, but I didn't mind this so much, for it hinted at the close of autumn. I've no doubt facing the wind in this way was excellent discipline, but I didn't think it necessary then, and my heart was sometimes bitter and rebellious. The soldier did not intend to be severe. As he had always been an early riser and a busy toiler, 
it seemed perfectly natural and good discipline that his son should also plough and husk the corn at ten years of age. He often told of beginning life as a bound boy at nine, and these stories helped me to perform my own tasks without whining. I feared to voice my weakness. At last there came a morning when by striking my heel upon the ground, I convinced my boss that the soil was frozen too deep for the moldboard to break. All right, he said, you may lay off this forenoon. Oh, those beautiful hours of respite! With time to play or read, I usually read, devouring anything I could lay my hands upon, newspapers, whether old or new, or pasted on the wall or piled up in the attic. Anything in print was wonderful to me. One enthralling book, borrowed from neighbor Button, was The Female Spy, A Tale of the Rebellion. Another treasure was a story called Cast Ashore, but this volume, unfortunately, was badly torn, and fifty pages were missing so that I never knew, and do not know to this day, how those indomitable shipwrecked seamen reached their English homes. I dimly recall that one man carried a pet monkey on his back, and that they all lived on bustards. Finally, the day came when the ground rang like iron under the feet of the horses, and a bitter wind, raw and gusty, swept out of the northeast, bringing gray veils of sleet. Winter had come. Work in the furrow had ended. The plow was brought in, cleaned and greased, to prevent its rusting and while the horses munched their hay in well-earned holiday, father and I helped Farmer Button husk the last of his corn. Osmond Button, a quaint and interesting man of middle age, was a native of York State, and retained many of the traditions of his old home, strangely blent with a store of vivid memories of Colorado, Utah, and California, for he had been one of the gold-seekers of the early fifties. He loved to spin yarns of when I was in gold camps, and he spun them well. He was short and bent, and spoke in a low voice with a curious nervous sniff, but his diction was notably precise and clear. He was a man of judgment, and a citizen of weight and influence. From O. Button I got my first definite notion of Bret Hart's country, and of the long journey which they of the ox team had made in search of El Dorado. His family, mostly boys and girls, was large, yet they all lived in a low limestone house which he had built, he said, to serve as a granary till he should find time to erect a suitable dwelling. In order to make the point dramatic, I will say that he was still living in the granary, when last I called on him thirty years later. A warm friendship sprang up between him and my father, and he was often at our house but his gaunt and silent wife seldom accompanied him. She was kindly and hospitable, but a great sufferer. She never laughed and seldom smiled, and so remains a pathetic figure in all my memories of the household. The younger Button children, Ava and Cyrus, became our companions in certain of our activities, but as they were both very sedate and slow of motion, they seldom joined us in our livelier sports. They were both much older than their years. Cyrus at this time was almost as venerable as his father, although his years were, I suppose, about seventeen. Albert and Lavinia, we heard, 
were much given to dancing and parties. One night, as we were all seated around the kerosene lamp, my father said, Well, Bell, I suppose we'll have to take these young ones down to town and fit them out for school. These words so calmly uttered filled our minds with visions of new boots, new caps, and new books, and though we went obediently to bed, we hardly slept, so excited were we and at breakfast next morning not one of us could think of food. All our desires converged upon the wondrous expedition, our first visit to town. Our only carriage was still the lumber wagon, but it had now two spring seats, one for father, mother, and Jessie, and one for Harriet, Frank, and myself. No one else had anything better, hence we had no sense of being poorly outfitted. We drove away across the frosty prairie toward Osage, moderately comfortable and perfectly happy. Osage was only a little town, a village of perhaps twelve hundred inhabitants, but to me, as we drove down its main street, it was almost as impressive as La Crosse had been. Frank clung close to father, and mother led Jessie, leaving Harriet and me to stumble over nail kegs and dodge whiffle trees what time our eyes absorbed jars of pink and white candy, and sought out boots and buckskin mittens. Whenever Harriet spoke she whispered, and we pointed at each shining object with curious care. Oh, the marvelous exotic smells! Odors of salt codfish and spices, calico and kerosene, apples and ginger snaps mingle in my mind as I write. Each of us soon carried a candy marble in his or her cheek, as a chipmunk carries a nut, and Frank and I stood like sturdy hitching posts, whilst the storekeeper with heavy hands screwed cotton plush caps upon our heads. But the most exciting moment, the crowning joy of the day, came with the buying of our new boots. If only father had not insisted on our taking those which were a size too large for us, they were real boots. No one but a congressman wore gaiters in those days. War fashion still dominated the shoe shops, and high-topped cavalry boots were all but universal. They were kept in boxes under the counter, or ranged in rows on a shelf, and were of all weights and degrees of fineness. The ones I selected had red tops with a golden moon in the center, but my brother's taste ran to blue tops decorated with a golden flag. Oh, that deliciously oily new smell! My heart glowed every time I looked at mine. I was especially pleased because they did not have copper toes. Copper toes belonged to little boys. A youth who had plowed seventy acres of land could not reasonably be expected to dress like a child. How smooth and delightfully stiff they felt on my feet! Then came our new books a McGuffey reader, a Mitchell geography, a Ray's arithmetic, and a slate. The books had a delightful new smell also, and there was singular charm in the smooth surface of the unmarked slates. I was eager to carve my name in the frame. At last, with our treasures under the seat, so near that we could feel them, with our slates and books in our laps, we jolted home, dreaming of school and snow. To wade in the drifts with our fine high-topped boots was now our desire. It is strange, but I cannot recall how my mother looked on this trip. Even my father's image is faint and vague. 
I remember only his keen, eagle-gray, terrifying eyes. But I can see every acre of that rented farm. I can tell you exactly how the house looked. It was an unpainted square cottage, and stood bare on the sod at the edge of Dry Run Ravine. It had a small lean-to on the eastern side, and a sitting-room and bedroom below. Overhead was a low unplastered chamber in which we children slept. As it grew too cold to use the summer kitchen, we cooked, ate, and lived in the square room, which occupied the entire front of the two-story upright, and which was, I suppose, sixteen feet square. As our attic was warmed only by the stovepipe, we older children of a frosty morning made extremely simple and hurried toilets. On very cold days, we hurried downstairs to dress beside the kitchen fire. Our furniture was of the rudest sort. I cannot recall a single piece in our house, or in our neighbors' houses, that had either beauty or distinction. It was all cheap and worn, for this was the middle border, and nearly all our neighbors had moved, as we had done, in covered wagons. Farms were new, houses merely shanties, and money was scarce. War times and war prices were only just beginning to change. Our clothing was all cheap and ill-fitting. The women and children wore homemade cotton flannel underclothing for the most part, and the men wore rough, ready-made suits, over which they drew brown denim blouses or overalls to keep them clean. Father owned a fine buffalo overcoat. So much of his song's promise was redeemed and we possessed two buffalo robes for use in our winter sleigh, but mother had only a sad coat and a woolen shawl. How she kept warm I cannot now understand. I think she stayed at home on cold days. All of the boys wore long trousers, and even my eight-year-old brother looked like a miniature man with his full-length overalls, high-topped boots, and real suspenders. As for me, I carried a bandana in my hip pocket and walked with determined, masculine stride. My mother, like all her brothers and sisters, was musical and played the violin, or fiddle as we called it, and I have many dear remembrances of her playing. Napoleon's March, Money Musk, The Devil's Dream, and half a dozen other simple tunes made up her repertoire. It was very crude music, of course but it added to the love and admiration in which her children always held her. Also, in some way, we had fallen heir to a Prince Melodian, one that had belonged to the McClintocks, but only my sister played on that. Once at a dance in neighbor Button's house, mother took the dare of the fiddler, and with shy smile played the fisher's hornpipe, or some other simple melody, and was mightily cheered at the close of it a brief performance which she refused to repeat. Afterward she and my father danced, and this seemed a very wonderful performance. For to us they were old, far past such frolicking, although he was but forty and she thirty-one. At this dance I heard, for the first time, the local professional fiddler, old Daddy Fairbanks, as quaint a character as ever entered fiction for he was not only butcher and horse-doctor, but a renowned musician as well, tall, gaunt, and sandy, with enormous nose and sparse projecting teeth. He was to me the most enthralling figure at this dance, 
and his queer calls and his york state accent filled us all with delight alley man left chassis by your partners dozy do were some of the phrases he used as he played honest john and haste to the wedding at times he sang his calls in high nasal chant first lady lead to the right deedle deedle dum dum gent follow after dally deedle do do three hands round and everybody laughed with frank enjoyment of his words and action it was a joy to watch him start the set with fiddle under his chin he took his seat in a big chair on the kitchen table in order to command the floor farm on farm on he called disgustedly lively now and then when all the couples were in position with one mighty number fourteen boot uplifted with bow laid to strings he snarled already galang and with a thundering crash his foot came down honors to your partners right and left four and the dance was on i suspect his fiddlin was not even middlin but he beat time fairly well and kept the dancers somewhere near to rhythm and so when his ragged old cap went round he often got a handful of quarters for his toil he always ate two suppers one at the beginning of the party and another at the end he had a high respect for the skill of my uncle david and was grateful to him and the other better musicians for their non-interference with his professional engagements the schoolhouse which was to be the centre of our social life stood on the bare prairie about a mile to the southwest and like thousands of other similar buildings in the west had not a leaf to shade it in summer nor a branch to break the winds of savage winter there's been a good deal of talk about setting out a windbreak neighbor button explained to us but nothing has as yet been done it was merely a square pine box painted a glaring white on the outside and a desolate drab within at least drab was the original color but the benches were mainly so greasy and hacked that original intentions were obscured it had two doors on the eastern end and three windows on each side a long square stove standing on slender legs in a puddle of bricks a wooden chair and a rude table in one corner for the use of the teacher completed the movable furniture the walls were roughly plastered and the windows had no curtains it was a barren temple of the arts even to the residents of dry run and harriet and i stealing across the prairie one sunday morning to look in came away vaguely depressed we were fond of school and never missed a day if we could help it but this neighborhood center seemed small and bleak and poor with what fear what excitement we approached the door on that first day i can only faintly indicate all the scholars were strange to me except albert and cyrus button and i was prepared for rough treatment however the experience was not so harsh as i had feared true rangely field did throw me down and wash my face in snow and jack sweet tripped me up once or twice but i bore these indignities with such grace and could command and soon made a place for myself among the boys burton babcock was my seatmate and at once became my chum you will hear much of him in this chronicle he was two years older than i and though pale and slim was unusually swift and strong for his age he was a silent lad 
curiously timid in his classes and not at ease with his teachers i cannot recover much of that first winter of school it was not an experience to remember for its charm not one line of grace not one touch of color relieved the room's bare walls or softened its harsh windows perhaps this very barrenness gave to the poetry in our readers an appeal that seems magical certainly it threw over the faces of francis babcock and mary abby gammons a lovelier halo they were the big girls of the school that is to say they were seventeen or eighteen years old and francis was a special terror of the teacher a pale and studious pigeon-toed young man who was preparing for college in spite of the cold the boys played open-air games all winter dog and deer dare ghoul and fox and geese were our favorite diversions and the wonder is that we did not all die of pneumonia for we battled so furiously during each recess that we often came in wet with perspiration and coughing so hard that for several minutes recitations were quite impossible but we were a hardy lot and none of us seemed the worse for our colds there was not much chivalry in the school quite the contrary for it was dominated by two or three big rough boys and the rest of us took our tone from them to protect a girl to shield her from remark or indignity required a good deal of bravery and few of us were strong enough to do it girls were foolish ridiculous creatures set apart to be laughed at or preyed upon at will to shame them was a great joke how far i shared in these barbarities i cannot say but that i did share in them i know for i had very little to do with my sister harriet after crossing the schoolhouse yard she kept to her tribe as i to mine this winter was made memorable also by a revival which came over the district with sudden fury it began late in the winter fortunately for it ended all dancing and merrymaking for the time it silenced daddy fairbanks fiddle and subdued my mother's glorious voice to a wail a cloud of puritanical gloom settled upon almost every household youth and love became furtive and hypocritic the evangelist one of the old-fashioned shouting hysterical ungrammatical gasping sort took charge of the services and in his exhortations phrases descriptive of lakes of burning brimstone and ages of endless torment abounded some of the figures of speech and violent gestures of the man still linger in my mind but i will not set them down on paper they are too dreadful to perpetuate at times he roared with such power that he could have been heard for half a mile and yet we went night by night mother father jesse all of us it was our theatre some of the roughest characters in the neighborhood rose and professed repentance for a season even old barton the profanest man in the township experienced a change of heart we all enjoyed the singing and joined most lustily in the tunes even little jesse learned to sing heavenly wings there is a fountain filled with blood and old hundred as i peer back into that crowded little schoolroom smothering hot and reeking with lamp smoke and recall the half-lit familiar faces of the congregation it all has the quality of a vision something experienced in another world the preacher leaping sweating 
roaring till the windows rattle. The mothers with sleeping babes in their arms, the sweet, strained faces of the girls, the immobile wondering men, are spectral shadows, figures encountered in the phantasmagoria of disordered sleep. End of chapter 9